You're listening to the Youth for Life podcast with Michelle Baum, director of Why for Life at Lutherans for Life, where we prepare youth to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Be sure to stick around after today's live recording of our Chats for Life program to find out how you can be live too on our next Youth for Life podcast. and begin. We may have a couple more join us. We'll see, but I'm just very excited that uh, all of you were able to come tonight. And we have a good topic tonight and one that I hope you really ask a lot of questions about. And hopefully you'll never have to use this information in your life, but at the same time, it is good to know. Let's open with prayer if that's okay. And then I have a question for you. All right. So let's pray, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day and for this night, this opportunity to learn uh, about this life issue that certainly is is a heavy one, Lord, Um, one that we can all agree is bad news and life-changing. We ask, Lord, that you would be with our presenter tonight, that you would be with Deaconess Shave and help her to answer the questions that we have and give us the information we need so that we can be gospel-motivated voices for life not only in our community, but intervening in the lives who need it most. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so my opening questions tonight. First question is, when you hear the term child abuse, what sort of things, images or words come into your head? And I will take volunteers. I don't want to put anyone on the spot. And then I'll just kind of move around the screen. So when you hear the term child abuse, what images or thoughts come into your head? I think of like a kid being usually physically abused, but also mentally abused in their home by someone that's supposed to be like comforting and supporting. And often you don't know that the child's being abused because they're like told not to say anything or they're too afraid to. Okay. All right. So you think of a couple different types of abuse and and the conflict that the child might have with disclosing that information. Okay. Anyone else? I kind of think of like helplessness to an extent, because oftentimes these are um, situations where the children, they're trying to reach out for help, but it's hard when you're a kid, like you aren't fully developed. So it's a lot, it's, it's a completely different situation because of their age. Okay. I think of the two different words or and concepts of being victimized and being betrayed. Okay, good. Other ideas, other words or thoughts? I think of like families that um, maybe like there's issues between the parents. So it kind of gets taken on the children just because they're kids and like when you're a parent, you have to teach your kid to behave. And so like when kids are just doing natural like things as a kid would do, and then the parents like get upset about it and then the abuse begins. So maybe having that model between adults in your life. Any other I definitely ones? think of like, um, I can't remember who said it, but not knowing what to do or where to like where to go for the child. So definitely a lot of confusion there, um, you know, even beyond the immediate psychological or physical trauma not knowing how to resolve the trauma or where to go to get help, especially if it's in a situation like at home um, where the people who are supposed to be providing for you are the ones who are causing the trauma. Yeah, good. All right. 
I won't press anyone that, you know, if you don't have anything to share, that's okay. Throughout our presentation tonight, please do feel free to ask questions and to clarify things. I know that our presenter would, would appreciate that. Just quick show of hands. How many of you know that in your area, there is a resource for families who are experiencing abuse, for children um, who are experiencing abuse? How many of you know there is a resource in your area? And how many of you know how to contact that resource? Okay, so just some things to be thinking about. And so I'm going to go ahead and hand tonight's discussion over to our Deaconess, Deaconess Shave. I am so pleased that she is here to join us. She works uh, for the LCMS and actually was just talking about her work with me just before you got on. So I'm going to go ahead and pass it over uh, to her. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, it's so great to be with you guys. I just want to clarify, I had served as the chairperson of our task force on domestic violence and child abuse when I had worked for the LCMS. I currently have um, switched positions and work with an organization that serves the homeless, but I still serve with the LCMS and their speakers bureau. So I'm just really thrilled to be here. I don't know why I picked this night right before Christmas <laughs> to talk about such a heavy topic, but you know, it is really prevalent right now with COVID and I'm, I'm really you know, I feel really blessed to be able to be here with you and share what I've learned through the work that the task force had done on trying to identify helpful information and learn more about how this impacts us in the church. And um, it really does. Also, just thank you guys. Like, it's just so, it's a thrill for me to see younger generations that really feel strongly about the sanctity of human life. This is certainly an issue that goes hand in hand with the way that we view children in our society, starting from you know conception and um, life in the womb to after the fact. So thank you for your commitment to life. I had um, previously in a, a previous call as a deaconess been able to um, start a pregnancy center where I was living down in Georgia. And it was just so amazing to learn so much about how people are thinking and using the word of God, how impactful that is on changing hearts and changing minds about how that life um, that they are carrying um, can be preserved rather than diminished as we see so often in our society. So um, I hope to be kind of informal. If at any point you have a question, I know Zoom doesn't let you like raise your hand. So maybe, I, and I can't see everybody either. I've only got a few people on scene because I need to see my slides too. So feel free to just kind of interrupt, unmute if you want and just say, hey, Deaconess or hey, Kim, um, and I'll stop to answer any of your questions. And I love the words that you guys described. Anna used the word helpless. And you think about protection of the vulnerable that is so adequate and appropriate when you think about children, they are helpless. And we know with our commitment to life issues that a baby in the womb is you know, one of the most helpless, voiceless, individuals um, created in the image of God, and it's our voices that speak for them, but even children that are living and even up to the age of 18, children are really taught to, to remain silent if they are victims of abuse or survivors of abuse. And it's really important that we in the church especially take a firm stand and we make it known that we are a place of refuge, a safe place where children can come or any adults that may have some concerns about a family that they know that, that we are ready and prepared to talk about this in the church. This was a taboo subject growing up. I'll admit my age, I'm a little just turned, um, I'll be 51 here in a couple months, but this was just not something that we openly talked about. So I was so pleased to hear your guys' understanding and description of abuse, talking about using the word victim and betrayed. Jenna, you had used those words. This is just isn't something that used to be talked about. In our church, you guys will well know, um, especially those of you, I'm assuming, 
most of you are in the LCMS. Um, I hope that maybe perhaps some of you are in other Lutheran church bodies, but, but we've been really slow to respond to some of these really difficult subjects. We're afraid we don't know how to talk about them in child abuse, abortion, domestic violence, anything where shame, shame in that lack of dignity. We just haven't been as open and vocal about talking about it. And we really need to make that change. And it really does start with your generation, making sure that we're open to speaking about this in the church. So that's what I'm hoping to convey today, just the importance of protecting the vulnerable um, and just, they don't have a voice. Um, some of them do, but most of the time you're not finding out about abuse directly from the child. A lot of times it's something that you're envisioning or you're seeing yourself. And there may be some clues and indicators that we can talk about too that would help you. But again, just remember that this is no different than that vulnerable, innocent child in the womb. Children are innocent. And um, some people spin it and try to say that, you know, a child deserved this. They had bad behavior or um, were acting in a certain way. And that is never the case. Children were made um, in the image of God and they were meant to be protected, to be treated with dignity, to be loved, to be nurtured, to be cared for. That's God's plan. And any deviation from that plan is simply just wrong. It's sinful. And we need to make sure that those of us in the church, those of us who are Christians, provide a really strong witness for that. All right. So let's start with the definition. Child maltreatment, um, a definition. And I know some of you um, touched on this a little bit with how you described it. Mal maltreatment is the overarching word that's used for abuse. Any type of abuse or neglect of a child under the age of 18, it can be at the hands of a parent, a caregiver, or some other person that has a custodial role. That could be a clergy, could be a coach if it's a, a young athlete, could be a teacher, Boy Scout leader, anyone in a position of authority that has care for that child during um, some sort of activity. And this is a, a, a definition that came directly from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is about the most overarching definition I think that you can find. So you guys are right on with some of your descriptions as um, you started with your responses to the questions. In the same way with types of abuse, some of you had alluded to this, um, there's physical abuse that usually involves intentional physical force, hitting, kicking, shaking, burning, something just horrific like that, grabbing an arm and leaving bruises or you know, um, just doing anything that would cause some sort of physical pain or harm to a child. Um, and that's one that is usually the most commonly thought of when you think about child abuse. The next one that we tend to think about is sexual abuse. And that's when you're engaging a child in any form of sexual act. And you can see some of those descriptions there, um, even just exposing a child to sexual activities or pornography or pictures or something to that effect for uh, the gaining of one's own pleasure is um, still considered sexual abuse. A child has no reason to be exposed to anything like that. And it is absolutely abuse. Anything even closely or remotely related to something inappropriate for their age would be considered abuse by authorities. Um, another major category would be emotional or verbal abuse. That's when the child's self-worth or their emotional well-being is somehow jeopardized or harmed. That might involve name calling, shaming them, rejecting them, withholding love, threatening them, um, anything that is really impacting their ability, their cognitive reasoning, and their ability to see themselves, especially as we would view it in the church as a child of God, and one who's deserving of not only God's love, but our parents' love and nurturing and care as well. And then that fourth category is neglect. And this oftentimes um, is much more common than what we want to really believe it is. Um, and we're um, especially during the pandemic right now, I just can't speak strongly enough to how much more child abuse is occurring now that everyone is stuck in the home. Kids, especially who are 
in virtual school or learning environments or at home. Parents are trying to work from home. Their kids are being kids and getting frustrated. And it's just been um, a very difficult time. I know you guys as college and high school students, it's been difficult. I have three college age students. I teach college classes at two different universities. And I see the stress that um, students are having, but it's the same way with parents who are trying to, to juggle everything, their work, any of the challenges and stressors from work, but then trying to be, you know, the, the homeschooling parent, um, if they're not already in that role, if they're used to sending their children off to school. So neglect can fit in there as well, especially as we see poverty on the rise, um, as people are losing their jobs and their income during COVID. Um, that's just basically not meeting a child's needs, their housing, their food, clothing, education, access to medical care. Uh, we would certainly in the church include any kind of spiritual care in there as well, um, attending church, but certainly the government sources or more secular sources wouldn't see that necessarily. But we also um, certainly as Christians know how important a life of worship is for the well-being of all of us, but children included. I don't know if this will surprise you or not. It may not. Most child abuse occurs in the home and it's usually by somebody that a child knows. And you can see some percentages here. Those abused by biological parents or a non-biological parent or partner that may live in the home or spend a good deal of time in the home. Neglected children, as we just talked about, that um, their basic needs are not being met 100% of the time. That's going to be from a caregiver in the home. Emotionally abused children, um, typically that's at about 93%. A parent is the one that's the perpetrator of emotional abuse. Physical abuse, it's usually 91% of the time being parents. And this is a scary one that really, especially if any of you are considering uh, a church work profession or working as a teacher in a school, sexually abused children, it's a lot lower. That doesn't tend to happen as frequently in the home. It still does. 60% is horrendous. Um, but that other 40% is oftentimes someone close to them, maybe an, an uncle, or I mean, it could be an aunt as well. Sadly, there are women who are perpetrators of abuse um, on, for sexual purposes. And um, typically churches, and I, I um, really, am, we, when we go around and offer training on this topic, it shocks some people, but churches are really a target for people that are interested in grooming a child and trying to perpetrate abuse on them from a sexual standpoint, because we're such good, faithful people. We want to believe the best in people. We think nobody would ever dare harm a child. So we really, really have to be on guard in the church and in our schools or a Boy Scout organization or any other type of youth organization in our churches, because we really are, research has shown, abusers have discussed very openly that we are targeted because we just have this this built-in trust for people and they will try to really manipulate us in, in that regard. So we want to be really careful about that. And 22% of sexually abused children are abused by someone in authority, a clergy member, a teacher. YSO is a youth service organization. So that would be like a Boy Scout troop or some sort of um, scouting or other um, activity like that. A coach would fall in there as well. Again, someone in authority. Okay, any questions on that? Does that surprise you? Again, most of it occurs in the home, but when you're talking about sexual abuse, that's a little bit more broad and people are looking at these children from outside and actually looking for viable targets. Typically, um, abusers that have been caught and have been um, put in jail and are willing to participate in research will say they target certain children based on things that they see. They can tell they're from a broken home. The child might look a little disheveled and not really well put together so that adult will do what's called grooming and build up this relationship and friendship and trust with this child and then 
get to a point where that trust is there and they have access to that child and they may do the unthinkable. And then there are threats or if not threats, there may be incentives where, you know, they, they help convince a child not to tell anybody again, either they're threatening them or their family or their pet, or they may be offering them money or other benefits that a young child would find helpful. And um, that's what's keeping children silent from getting help. Long-term effects of abuse, here are um, some bullet points that may help you. And this impacts the church, our schools, our whole entire community. So we say there's a diminished executive functioning and cognitive skills. So if you are routinely subjected to abuse, any of those forms of abuse, again, that trust that, that a caregiver has been um, put in place to care for that child and nurture that child has been jeopardized and it's been diminished. Um, so when that happens, the child's ability to function and their thinking and their ability to reason and, and do well in school even is greatly diminished. So that can certainly be one item that we may see um, to realize that there could be some kind of a problem in a child's life if all of a sudden they're just, you know, not doing well in school or their, their behavior changes or their performance in school changes. Um, poor mental and emotional health, certainly that wouldn't surprise any of you. The more you're subjected to abuse, mistreatment, you're being put down, um, being told that you're worthless and shamed, not worth anything, then certainly that is not going to help you develop into a healthy, maturing teenager into adulthood. Uh, children that are abused also have difficulty forming and maintaining attachments, so they may have some relationship issues later in life. Post-traumatic stress can continue to be an issue for them. They may relive some of the stress and trauma, or the trauma, I should say, from any type of abuse, whether it was one time or ongoing. So that will definitely be something that has to be taken care of by professionals to help that child overcome those long-term effects. Um, delinquency and substance abuse, promiscuity also uh, falls in this category as well. Some of those are effects that happen as a result of this treatment. Again, they're treated less than human and they begin to think of themselves as less than human. So what does it matter if I go out and get in trouble or they turn to drugs or alcohol to help soothe that, that pain that they've been dealing with for so long? And then the worst part that would impact all of our communities, our churches, our schools, um, again, the community at large, when they have parents that taught them that abusive behavior is acceptable, that's all they know. If there's no intervention, that's what they know. And they will perpetuate that abuse, abuse and it'll become cyclical. And um, that will definitely usually be something that they end up doing, um, whether it's their own children or other children that they may have access to. So it's so important to recognize that and make sure that if someone does come forward with um, some issue of abuse and we know who that perpetrator is or the abuser is, we want to make sure that they have an opportunity to seek help and be given the counseling that, that they would need as well, just to be able to um, not only end the abuse, but then also the child who was a victim of abuse would need assistance in overcoming that and learning very strongly how wrong that was, not only in the eyes of God from a spiritual care perspective, but just from a um, more of a psychological or emotional perspective where um, some kind of a um, counseling or psychiatrist or psychiatric care may be needed depending on how severe the abuse is. So again, those are long-term effects. There are more, but those are some of the most obvious ones that are being seen. And I can't say enough about the importance of a Christian witness in this. As I alluded to when I started, the church has been somewhat reticent to speak about this openly, because again, it's just something that it's shameful. You keep this quiet. You don't want, um, you know, the community to think that you have something 
really bad going on in, in your church, especially if there is a, um, some instance of sexual abuse happening with a church member. Um, a lot of times the churches wanted to brush that under the rug. We see what's happened certainly in the Catholic church, um, but don't for a minute think that we're any better because we're Lutherans. We just, we don't have the type of um, the polity, the structure in our church because congregations um, have are autonomous and have their own ability to make decisions where the Catholic church doesn't. People just got moved around in the Catholic church. Um, so they were able to brush it under the rug. It does happen in our churches. It happens in our schools. And we need to make sure that we are there for those people who may have been victims. Um, and here's um, an example. I was talking with my husband who he is a pastor and works for the LCMS, and he does a lot of work in the urban community and works with minority communities. And he was pointing out that, um, and that's his first bullet point. And you guys may know this just from your work on, on the, the just the pro-life, um, you know, trying to promote that ethic of life and prevent abortions. But we have for so long as Christians been accused of caring for life in the womb, we save the baby. And then after that, we don't care, we walk away. Does that sound like something you've been accused of as a Christian that stands for life? that we don't do enough after the child is born to help that parent with the financial needs that they may have or the um, coping skills they may need or parenting skills. Does that sound like something that you've probably heard? Yeah, people keep calling me pro-birth instead of pro-life because like you only want them to get born and then you don't care at all, you know? I'm totally with you. There are whole segments of the population who would have, you know, have that same line of thought as what your friends or your, um, your peers have said to you. So that's where the second bullet point is so important. And whether you're talking about life in the womb or life after that baby is born, we have to work and promote those healthy family relationships, which would include doing what we can to prevent abuse, but helping with material needs. If a mom is in need of um, housing, which is what my organization does, the work that I do full time, we help families and many of them are fleeing violence situations, domestic violence, and that does impact the children in such a negative way. So we want to make sure that we're helping if um, when the baby is born with any needs that they have for the baby, whether it's clothing, diapers, formula, baby food as they grow, whatever that we can do, parenting classes, help them better understand the importance of um, child safety, um, the most common sense things that we take for granted. Not everybody has been taught by their parents, you know, putting in a car seat properly, making sure your home is safe, that you're not co-sleeping with an infant and things like that. They don't necessarily know. So that's where the church can really step in or a group of loving, faithful Christians that want to help in that way. And that way we're we're negating that stereotype. We really do care. And I was blessed to be able to work with a pregnancy center that used the curriculum Earn While You Learn. And we worked with a whole lot of undocumented Hispanic immigrants um, that had nowhere else to turn. They were kind of shunned by the local community, but they could come to us, take classes. And we had a baby boutique and were able to help them with so many of the needs that they had. And um, some of their relationships with their husbands were not very healthy at all. So we were able to help uh, with some of those relationship issues and then connect them with local churches as well to give them that spiritual care from a long-term standpoint that they need. But one particular group that really stands out, and again, as I was talking to my husband last night, he's mentioning this, especially in minority communities, African-Americans, especially, they very well have been taught in their own churches that they've grown up in that life begins in the womb, as we would all say as strong Lutherans um, and Christians. But this was a quote from an article I found, but this particular pastor said, but having seen firsthand how their communities have been hurt by high incarceration rates, economic disinvestment, 
and the lack of educational opportunities, some of um, have a hard time embracing what they see as a one size fits all abortion ban. So this really ties in with what we're doing from a pro-life perspective, trying to prevent those decisions for uh, moms that would choose abortion for their babies. And um, it's just so important. It's to the point where pastors will even look the other way and accept abortion because they so look at the Christian community and the slide I'll get to in a moment here, especially the white Anglo Christian community as just saying no abortions ever period. And we stop there and we neglect the needs. And, and again, looking at these incarceration rates, the economic disparities, the educational opportunities. And that's where we so heavily see children falling into lives of violence because that's what they have learned at their, in, home, in their home. And child abuse has become much more prevalent. So we have to stand in that gap and continue to support those families and be a source of spiritual, emotional, um, physical needs, um, that type of care that they need so that we can do better to give that Christian witness. And it's more than just, you know, you know, being pro-birth, but we're pro-child, you know, the whole time. And that is so important. So here's another quote, and I, this may or may not offend you, but this is what um, is really important for us to understand. This is a pastor in Kansas City that said in this article, those who are most vocal about abortion and abortion laws are my white brothers and sisters. And yet many of them don't care about the plight of the poor, the plight of the immigrant, the plight of African-Americans. He's opposed to abortion, but what he's saying here is there are so many in the Af African-American church community, pastors included, that just are okay with abortion because they think that this child is just going to end up incarcerated or die a violent death anyway. So, you know, you might as well avoid that happening. And um, I, I know there are even LCMS pastors, unfortunately, who hold that view. And it is so sad. And again, that importance of a Christian witness, His what he ends with, my argument here is, Let's think about the entire lifespan of the person. And that's what I would reiterate so much to you um, as we're done with this conversation tonight is just remember that, it, and I know you guys know this, I'm preaching to the choir, but this goes beyond the birth that we continue to help families. We help children have what they need to be in healthy families to the extent that we possibly can as a church. Any thoughts on that? I'll stop for a second and get your thoughts. And this again was a new concept to me. I had no idea that People were against abortion, but they were okay with it because we're all lip service until the baby is born. That was just new information to me. Any thoughts? Maybe some of you already knew this or does this shock anyone else? Um, yeah, I actually think this is very fitting because so I go to a public university at Purdue University in Indiana and I was in one of my classes and we just, we talk a lot about poverty and, you know, how do we get out of poverty? And like abortion was brought up multiple times and it's just, it's really good to hear this information and how we can affirm life in those ways. And honestly, like even some of my friends have different views on this, but now that I know this, it's very good information to know. Good. Glad to hear that. Anyone else have any thoughts? This is just kind of a thought. Abortion never solves anything. It just creates more problems. So if, you know, you're suffering with poverty, you know, paying money to have an abortion is not going to solve your problem. Um, so I think this really does highlight the importance of pregnancy resource centers. And they really are showing that we're not just pro-birth. And I don't think pro-birth is actually a bad thing in the first place. But <laughs> um, we're not just pro-birth because the pregnancy resource center where I work in my town um, they have parenting classes and they show you, you know, how to put the car seat in your car. So I think that just like spreading the word about pregnancy resource centers is so important because a lot of people I just think don't, they like don't know that they exist in their community. 
Right. And um, as a former director, I was in a very, uh, I was in the deep South in Georgia. So we had a lot of support from the churches and Christian community, but those actively opposed, um, we still were able to partner with them through some health, um, health collaborations, like with the hospitals and we got along, but you know, some of these ladies were absolutely pro-abortion, pro-choice, pro-birth control, pushing that adamantly. And we stood our ground like, no, send them here. We'll give them a car seat. We'll give them, um, you know, what they need. But I, I, that to me is the greatest hypocrisy and disparity here. And I know we're moving into a situation politically. I don't want to go political, but we know we're moving left again based on our president election. But um, I, I, and I've just seen it recently too with, um, with, with Dr. Biden and the whole Me Too movement and whether she truly should be called doctor or not. But for me, if you can't figure out the ultimate child abuse is killing an innocent innocent victim in the womb who has no voice, has no say. That is the ultimate child abuse. That's where it starts. But then on the other hand, you're out here advocating for children and doing all this, all that you can to stop child abuse and shame on people who are doing it, but you're pro-choice and you're okay with abortion doesn't sync up to me. I just, I can't, I can't reconcile that. So I don't know where you guys are on that. Certainly we're um, moving in a direction, I think, um, politically, that's going to continue to be a challenge for us. But it's so important, again, for us as Christians to stand firm, be loving, be vocal, um, and, and make sure you're doing it in love and that you have a good explanation for why you're, you know, you're, you're making the witness or saying what you're saying. But we have to stand firm. I know, I know for your generation, too, technology is helping as more pregnancy centers are, are transitioning more into medical centers and they're offering more STD testing and ultrasounds, the science is there, but there's still such pushback from certain segments of our community that want to normalize abortion. And um, I'll go back to what one of you were saying, just how it doesn't help. Abortion doesn't help. It just creates problems. But the more society tries to normalize it, it's just because they haven't dealt with their repressed shame and guilt and everything that went into their own abortion decision. So I'm going to celebrate my abortion. I'm going to just let everyone know, you know, how great it was, um, which is just disgusting. I can't even imagine God's response to that. But again, that attempt to normalize it because they can't deal with their own uh, repressed feelings and guilt and shame and all that is, is challenging. So again, I reiterate how liberal individuals on the political spectrum can be out there advocating for children and stop child abuse. It's horrible, but not see the effects of what's happening to children and the women might really continue to struggle with that. But conversely, then we have to make sure that we're making that point that we don't end when that baby's born. We stay with them. We help in, in every way that we possibly can. So that would be the one thing, that one main takeaway that I hope you guys all get, but I assume that you already know that. With Y for Life, of course, you know, many of you are involved in Y for Life groups and, and or are involved with uh, life groups in your own campus. And certainly uh, the Y for Life perspective is to exhibit that gospel motivated voice from the moment of conception all the way till natural death. You know, as people on campuses, as young people on campuses, whether they're high school or college, you can bring that message to whatever life issue is pressing, right? Most pressing. Um, you know, if you're in Chicago, you're probably going to be dealing with some different life issues than if you're in small town Indiana, right? Or or maybe south and north. And yet we all have that commonality. Abortion is cross across the nation, right? We have certain commonalities where we can say we stand firm on this. 
And you can see from our Chats for Life sessions in the past, um, certainly we want all of you to, and anyone who's connected with Lutherans for Life, to be pro-life all the way through, not just in utero, but all the way until until life on this earth is gone, right? Um, we, we had a guest speaker and we will have another one uh, that comes and speaks to us about how to care for the aging uh, in January. And we had one talk about a physician assisted suicide early on. So again, even these, these middle, these middle years, there's life issues. And of course, life issues are never just issues. They are people, right? Life issues are really people, people that need our care. And so, yeah, I think this, this resonates well with this, I would hope with this group. So Yeah. Amen. You're dealing with individuals, not an issue. I mean, we know it's an issue, but we deal. And and that's always my thing. My, um, and I'm someone who grew up outside the church. I was very much pro-choice, didn't care, didn't know the difference because I, nobody really taught me. And it was, you know, before ultrasound was that big of a deal. And then in my first pregnancy, after being married, we were married about a year and a half or so. Um, I went into preterm labor six months into my pregnancy and delivered twins. We had just learned about a week before I gave birth that we were expecting twins doesn't run in our family at all. And they only lived a day there with the Lord now in heaven. But that woke me up so much holding these little babies that were like one pound in my hand. They lived, breathed, and then died in my hands. And God just used that to, to show me that you need to start talking this, you know, I had a lot of repenting to do when I went through that and not understanding why it had to happen to me, but I just didn't understand. Nobody had really taken the time to care for me enough. It was just this, you know, judgmental Christians looking down on you. But when you really truly build a relationship and have trust with someone and you're speaking to them with gentleness and respect about your views. Again, we know the other side doesn't do that. They're very angry, vocal, been there, done that, get it. I understand it. I was there. Um, but once, once that light shines through and people understand what God really intended for those children and how important life is, um, it just changes everything. So anyway, that's kind of where I've come from um, in this. And it just amazes me though, how, people can still just be so angry and frustrated, but yet I understand it because they're dealing with very deep hurts that they were never able to truly deal with because we know that God says taking the life of an innocent person, harming a child, even after they're born is just wrong, but that guilt and that shame. And if you're not strong enough to be able to ask for the help that you need, and you don't know that, you know, Christ stands in that, in that gap for us and um, for all of our sins that he died for those um, for us. And it can be very difficult to reconcile what we've done and that guilt and shame can manifest itself in some very poor behavior as far as abuse and anger and frustration. So just kind of keep that in mind as well. Some of the angriest pro-choice people are those that are hurting the most. And I'm sure you guys know that. Um, Importance of scripture, I cannot say enough, and I know that I'm, again, preaching to the choir, in our congregations, in your circles of friends that you know, whether they're Christians or not, they are, you're going to have victims and survivors. So a victim is someone who's currently um, withstanding abuse, a survivor is someone who has been able to survive it, they've moved past it, they may not have moved past it, they're out of danger, essentially, it's no longer happening to them. Um, but it's in our congregations, it's in our Lutheran schools, it's on our Lutheran campuses. I'm sure you guys know this if you don't even know firsthand from your own situations. We can't ignore it. Um, mostly if we're speaking with deaconesses or pastors, we'll talk about making sure that they're including information in their church bulletins about child abuse, connecting them with local 
resources that can help them if they ever think there's an instance of abuse happening with, um, you know, a friend or family member that they have. We just, you know, really encourage pastors to preach about this. And then we mentioned here, Good Shepherd Sunday is really a good Sunday to talk about shepherding and what Jesus did and what he came to earth for, that that's for everybody, every child. And we need to make sure that we're protecting and caring for the most innocent and vulnerable among us. Again, those in the womb and those outside of the womb. And again, in this, a lot of times, especially happens with sexual abuse, the second bullet point, any um, neglect or abuse, oftentimes a sacred text is being used by the offender. Well, um, taking scripture and twisting it grossly, especially with sexual abuse and using that in a way to gain that child's trust and that authority over them um, where the God said, God said, and they will use scripture to twist it. So it's so important that we unravel that and we untwist it um, when you have a deaconess or a DCE or a teacher or a pastor, someone who's in a position to help from a scriptural standpoint to reinforce the the correct understanding of scriptures and untwist that sickening initial twisting that somebody may have done to harm a child. So um, don't, please don't ever underestimate the fact that this is happening in our churches. And again, you look at the Catholic church right now, that was done under the guise of, you know, scripture and using scripture to, to um, just instill such pain and and damage on children using God's own word. And so what happens then? How do you, when you think of God as your father, when we, you know, even just say the Lord's prayer, our father, many victims of abuse can't even say that prayer. They're so angry with God. Like, you know, where were you? You didn't hear my prayers. How could you let this person, if you're the loving father that everyone tells me that you are, how could you let this happen? And that is so difficult, but um, I've just been blessed to be on, um, the end of a conversation where you can help to turn that around in people just, but you have to be so careful with how you're approaching it using the gospel and all those wonderful gifts that we know that Christ provided for us and using scripture very carefully to re-penetrate, you know, some of those early learnings they may have had from a, as a child and untwist what others have have done to damage them. So just kind of keep that in mind as well. This is happening in our churches. It's happening among your friend groups, I'm sure. Um, so just keep that in mind that the, the, the same way that scripture could have been used to perpetuate that abuse, it's going to be scripture that's going to ultimately heal them and comfort them when it's taught to them in a correct way. Quick question on that then. So Deaconess Shave has been mentioning that you know, it is happening in our schools and it is. I've had a couple of students who one while they were a student of mine, um, I was the person that discovered the abuse and had to report that. And one um, happened years before, um, but but she brought it up quite a bit in my classroom and and challenged me a lot on what God's word was saying, right? How How can God say this and allow this? So again, those of you that are thinking about going into church work, especially, you're going to have to be ready, ready for that answer and ready for that discussion. Um, it, I know that it made some of my other students uncomfortable because, again, this is a topic we don't talk about openly. This is a topic that, that as a society, we are we try to hide. Right. But it actually has been very was very healthy for her to talk about it. Also, she was angry at God for quite some time. And still, she's living with another family now as an adult, and she is being brought to church, you know, as she can, but she still struggles with it. So it's been a long, a long healing process, and she's not through it yet. 
I'm sure that you could share many more experiences, but I, I guess, you know, have, have you seen that that's part of the healing process, the anger, the being angry at God, the questioning God, would you say that that's part of that process? Absolutely. Probably almost in almost any case, especially obviously for those who are Christians and grew up in a Christian environment. And if that abuse was perpetuated by a family member who professes to be Christian. Yeah, absolutely. But I can assure you that God's word does not go out void and it it's what will heal, but you have to truly be able to understand sin for what it is. And then also be able to explain Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He didn't deserve what he got either. And you have to be very, very careful. You never want to guilt somebody into thinking that they deserved it or that in any way, this was part of God's plan. Abuse is never, ever, ever, ever part of God's plan. This is a direct violation of horrendous perversion of God's word and what his intention was for the family. And we have to be so clear about this. It is wrong. And what happened to this person, it was absolutely wrong. And if that person claimed to be a Christian, they were truly confused or overtaken by Satan, whatever you think the situation would be. And that is not how God's plan works at all. And then we, again, the importance of reinforcing the correct understanding of scriptures. God is a loving God. He, and he put parents and woe to that person, that perpetrator of abuse, because they got to stand before him in judgment. If they even make it that far, you know, um, I don't, and I will say, um, I don't mean to go off topic here. Um, I can share some more resources by email later if helpful, but most abusers with the exception of sexual abusers can be rehabilitated. Oftentimes child molesters or those who are perpetrating sexual violence against children the rehabilitation rate is so, so low. It's just so difficult and not very possible. So oftentimes they're not even allowed to come back and worship or be anywhere near schools. And um, sadly, you try to help to the best of your ability, but it's just the research shows it's just so difficult to overcome. But yes, for sure, anger with God is going to be there and we'll have to find very loving, careful ways to help them overcome that. Hopefully that helps a little bit. And then, I mean, this is the most obvious scripture or Jesus is even rebuking his disciples. Let them come. Let those children come to me. That's the plan. Let them come to me. Don't hinder them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then he even took the time to lay his hands on them before he went away and before he left. And that just to me encapsulates everything about Christ's care for the littlest. For me as the child of God, even the grown adult that I am, but that I'm still his child. But God puts parents and caregivers in a position of of authority to be able to make sure that these children are protected and nurtured and well cared for. And again, any, any perversion or violation of that is an absolute violation of his word and his commands and woe to the person at whose hands, you know, that, that happens because that, that little child is going to be impacted for life. Let me see what else I have here. Um, I can close here. I can show you some other resources if you want a little bit more information on how you might be able to detect child abuse, but we have on the social issues website for the LCMS, there's a whole section on child abuse with some resources out there that you might look at. So here's the website. If you just do a search on LCMS social issues, there are all kinds of different topics. You can look for the one on child abuse. There's some that like a children's coloring book for a child that's been the victim of abuse where they can sort of working with a a church worker or a caregiver in the church. There's a a leader's guide as well, where the children are drawing um, kind of like coloring pictures and being reassured of God's love and and care for them as they're coloring pictures. And then that might help them open up to talk a little bit with the Christian caregiver. So anyway, some resources out there 
um, if you need them. Okay, hopefully you're seeing that. So this is the LCMS website um, on child abuse. There's just some introductory information and then some resources that your policies, I would say, oh my goodness, so much of what we're talking about is, you know, when child abuse actually occurs, prevention, prevention, prevention is so important. If you're going into a teaching role or a church worker role, please know how important that policies and guidelines are. As I mentioned earlier, churches are targets. Christian schools are targets because those who want to victimize young children, especially from a sexual standpoint, know that we are trusting, we believe the best in people, we would never think anybody would do that in our church. And when it does get discovered, we brush it under the rug, we don't want the community to know. When you have strong policies and guidelines in place, when you have strong reference checking in place, background checks with your staff that might be coming on board, when you have signs and posters posted around your church or school showing information, um, getting help if you do suspect child abuse in the same way with domestic violence, but you are telling these potential people coming into your church that might wanna harm children that no way, this is not the place. We are well-versed on this. We see it coming and we're gonna take action. So that is the single most effective way to just keep people out of, of your congregation, your schools, your daycares, is to make sure that you have good, strong policies and you promote all over that this is an important topic that your church is willing to talk about. Research has shown um, that people will go be sent packing in a job interview if they think there's any way they're going to be discovered. Um, let's see, here's some documents and articles as well. But let me just show you a couple more slides and then I'll take any questions that you might have. This is more um, if you're interested, if you're in a position where you might detect that a child is being injured, what, what would you do in that case? Oftentimes we don't really know what we should be doing. And I would say your, your first step, um, if, you're, if you end up being a church worker, you may very well be in a mandatory reporting situation where you are required by law to report child abuse to authorities in your community. So if you are not, you are still welcome. Typically your Department of Family and Children's Services or Children's Services, whatever it may be in your particular community, Call their number, call their hotline if you have any suspicions. You don't have to report anything. You call and ask them, this is what I'm seeing. What do you think? And it's anonymous and they will guide you and tell you, you know, what to look for or let you know, like, no, that really doesn't count. Or yes, this really does. And here are the next steps of what you should do. So just know that they're a resource. You don't just call them when you want to report something. They're there to help you make those determinations as well. For physical abuse, typically if the child tells you, you want to believe them and you want to, um, again, not be in a thing where you're investigating and trying to dig a little bit deeper, but you want to make sure that you're then referring to outside professionals, reporting that potential abuse and let the professionals come in and handle it. We're not skilled or equipped um, to be able to do that. Um, something else you can see for physical abuse, let me just double check the time here. I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. Something important to remember, most injuries for kids they're forward facing. So they end up falling forward. So um, I think that's actually on the next slide. If you see injuries on the back of a child, like on their buttocks, their back, the back of their arms, typically that could be an, um, some sort of an indication of abuse, but young children, especially when they fall or have some kind of accident, it's forward facing. So it would more be on their, their face or the front. So that could be a really important clue that um, you can see lateness to school, habitual absence, um, poor performance in school, any of those things could be possible explanations um, or indicators that abuse is happening. So again, suspicious injuries, that's pretty common. And then if a child, just real quickly, and I'll end and ask for any questions you may have, if a child, when it comes to sexual abuse, is it age-appropriate understanding of 
the child's body is so important. And if a child is using terms and language and explicitly talking about sexual acts that are well beyond their years, that's usually a very clear indication that they've been either abused, they've been witnessing or been exposed to something inappropriate. And those are things definitely that you wanna make sure that you realize are red flags and you would wanna try to get some assistance there. All right. So with that being said, I'll open it up to any other questions that you guys have. And um, know that anytime you can find me out on the LCMS Church Worker Locator, if you have any questions or any concerns or you know of someone that may need help, I am certainly please use me as a resource. I'm happy to try to help you get the help that, that you need for somebody, um, including yourself. I should usually before I present, I try to give a disclaimer that we know <laughs> At least one of you, if not more, have probably likely on this um, Zoom session experienced some form of abuse and just know that we are praying for you. We know that it's out there. There isn't a training that goes by that we have done that we haven't had someone come up to us afterwards and talk about their situation. So just remember how much you are loved by God and he will care for you and he will very likely use your own experiences to help others um, either through their own pain and suffering or help to prevent this from happening to other innocent children. So with that, what kind of questions do you have before we close? Any? I have a question. Um, do you see a link between individuals struggling with like their sexual identity and if they've been abused in the past? <sighs> I'm not prepared to speak um, from an empirical research standpoint, but I can tell you um, just more from more of an ad hoc basis. Yes, people that I have known, my work as a deaconess, Whenever I see somebody that's struggling with same-sex relationships or I suppose that gender identity, because you typically loathe the gender of the person that's abusing you and you either want to escape that, that gender altogether. And like if a, a young girl is abused, she may never have that level of trust towards a man again. And you'll find this, if, especially any of you are thinking about becoming a deaconess and serving more in a role of helping women they're not necessarily comfortable talking to the pastor. There, there could be something that's getting in the way of them trusting men from abuse possibly. So absolutely, anecdotally, I would say, yes, I have seen that. But again, I'm not prepared to speak to the research on that. And also realize research studies tell you what they <laughs> want. Certainly we are on the end of hostility in the Christian church and research would not want to in any way support our claims that that is the case which I think we, we would understand that anything that's in violation of God's word, you are engaged in sin. And until you can recognize that sin is sin, then yeah, you will continue to perpetuate either that sin or other sins in this case, perhaps child abuse. So hope that helps. But I, again, I'm not prepared to speak from the research on that, but I've definitely seen that. What other questions or thoughts do you guys have? I have one that I could ask. And then while I'm asking it, maybe you come up with others. You mentioned that there needs to be counseling to kind of stop that cyclical nature of abuse. So, you know, you're taught abuse as a child, then you grow up and that abuse is employed in your own home uh, later in life. So how successful would you say counseling is in stopping that cycle? Is it a fairly successful response or... Yeah, it's going to depend on the person's willingness to accept responsibility for their actions. So again, um, unfortunately, in instances of sexual abuse, the rate of recidivism or the, the repeat offender um, that need to repeat is so great. And it's just extremely difficult to overcome those urges and those unnatural feelings towards children. So that one is probably the most dour and you really have to be careful to keep 
individuals like that, even if they've been released from prison, but you have to be very careful about allowing them to be around children. But again, when it comes to any other form of abuse, and again, that's not to say a sexual abuser can't be rehabilitated or repent, but a lot of times it's a fake manipulative approach to the church. Yes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, and that's really where our trained pastors have to come into play here. And then when you are also working with a Christian counselor, preferably Christian, or at least a counselor who values and accepts our view of the scriptures, then that is the single most, um, those two combined pastoral care combined with, with mental health counseling, as well as accepting responsibility for your actions, rather than blaming that child or whatever other reasons that you're using those three things together would be a really good equation and um, help to, to see that, that a person could um, overcome the abuse that they were, um, you know, perpetrating. And then for a victim, then to just truly understand, again, that spiritual care standpoint, that they're being cared for spiritually and then emotionally, psychologically, then that is a very helpful thing. But again, it's really up to the individual and the level of care that they're getting, but they need to be loved, nurtured, and it takes great patience because everybody will come to an understanding in their own time. And we, we talk about forgiveness and a lot of times we think forgiveness means forgetting. We don't forget. And you may have to sever relationships with families and that's going to be okay. If that's what it takes for you to heal and stay safe, those severed relationships may have to happen. You, you find a way to forgive and that's for you, the person or the victim or survivor, that's for your own well-being, And that doesn't mean that what they did is okay. It means you've forgiven them. They're not gonna have control over your life anymore. That's in God's hands. You won't forget. And again, if you have to make those tough decisions to keep that person out of your life um, and don't ever expect to forget, you really won't. But that forgiveness, again, is something that you can only do with God's help. And that's for your benefit as the victim. What other questions you guys have? So I have a question that may or may not be kind of loaded. I was wondering your take, Deaconess, on... Matthew 18, 15, when Jesus talks about what to do if your brother sins against you. And I was wondering, with all the things like mandatory reporting, and I know the government makes us do stuff like that, if I notice something or something like that, should I, I would obviously go to my parents, but like if I was an adult or a teacher, do you think it would be better to give the parent like a chance to explain anything? I mean, I just always wondered that. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is very loaded and it's really difficult. So if you are in a position as a teacher, a deaconess, another official capacity like that, you're a mandatory reporter. You are required by law to report this. If you're a pastor, it depends on the state. Um, some states don't allow that, but the um, the clergy penitent privilege, um, where if somebody admits to being um, perpetrating abuse against a child, the clergy cannot and should not, under their private confession oath that, that they take, the name's escaping me, sorry, they should not disclose that. And um, you need to have that protection in place or you're never going to have individuals that are willing to come to you and seek repentance and help for their abominable behavior. So I would say in that case, again, that's where you... You know what you're seeing. You know what your suspicions are. It wouldn't hurt. Um, a lot of this can be done virtually, too. You might just do some research on the Internet. You might be able to call a hotline number or call your local Department of Family and Children's Services. Tell them what you're seeing, and they'll let you know what they think. But remember, when you are perpetrating abuse, you are going to cover that up. You do not want to have to go to jail. You may, you may love your children. You legitimately love your children and want to care for them. 
your anger gets the best of you, whatever, but you're still going to try to cover that up. You don't, especially if you're in the church, you don't want people to know what a monster you are. So families and others that perpetrate abuse are oftentimes master manipulators and they will tell you what you want to hear. And you're like, okay, I misunderstood. We are not trained in the church to be the ones that are, are um, well-equipped to investigate these types of claims and situations. We leave that to the professionals and the experts. But if you're afraid to go to that step and you're not in a position where you're a mandatory reporter, call, get the information you need, explain what you're seeing, and they will guide you and tell you what to look for, or what you should or shouldn't do. And, you know, I guess I've been doing this long enough and I've heard enough stories of such horrendous, horrendous abuse. My job is to protect that child. I feel like that's what God has called me to do. And if there's any indication that that child is being harmed, especially if they're articulating something to me, I'm going to protect that child and do what I have to do. Those adults know better and they're going to have to deal with whatever the repercussions are. And if I'm wrong, so be it. I'm sorry. I apologize if I lose my position in the church because I made a false claim, whatever, but I want that child to be protected. And that's my approach. So you guys will have to decide for yourselves individually outside of that mandatory reporting profession, if, if you're in one, on how you might work that out. I hope that helps some. But to me, that child is the one that's, as you guys said, helpless, victim, betrayed. That's our job as a church to stand in the gap and to um, help that child who doesn't have a voice. And remember, Jenna, that that is very often done anonymously. So it's yes, not necessarily you. traced back to you. Right. And they'll check it out. And so if you're doing it for the child, you can't feel guilty about that. Right. So I don't know if this is just me misjudging, like how our churches deal with sexual misconduct and like all forms of child abuse, but why are churches, and this is me talking about like multiple denominations because I am Catholic, but from talking with friends that are Lutheran who have been a victim of child abuse, why are churches in a way, once they find out about it, so willing to cover it up? And what does it mean for the church's way to like repent of the act of covering it up? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I, I harp on that big time when I'm speaking with pastors or to a congregation and training. I don't want to load you guys with this. Um, our churches often, more often than not, will side with the abuser because the crocodile tears, I didn't mean it, I'm so sorry. And we so want to protect that family's reputation and our church family's reputation. And it's wrong. You have to call it for what it is. So I think there is that that people are afraid they want, they don't want to be judged and they're trying to keep this kind of all in the family and um, the church has just really done a poor job. But it's again, as what Michelle was saying is it's just not something that we have talked about as openly and where our culture is, is more open and talking about these things. The church tends to lag behind and you guys are really going to be the impetus for making sure that these things are talked about. Um, and so Renette, I totally agree. Um, it's shameful the way some churches have responded to actual victims and they shame the victim and blame the victim and listen to the perpetrator and try to help him at the same time shaming her or whoever the, the victim was. And that again will cause them to leave the church possibly for good permanently turn away from God because why would God allow the evil person to just excel and be accepted and, and met with open arms by a church. And then I'm the one that's at fault and, or, you know, the person who was victimized. So um, I stand with you. It's very frustrating. It's wrong. And it's our job to help the church understand that that's not what we do. If you're interested in more resources, there's um, some really good stuff written on that particular topic where the church is really 
done a poor job. Um, again, I think we're improving, but as we talk about these things more, the church is learning like, oh yeah, we really do need to do more. So um, Renette or any of you, if you feel like you want to um, delve a little bit more into some of those resources that talk about why the church has historically not been as helpful towards victims or survivors, I'm happy to share that with you. I can send you an email. Just speaking as a pastor's wife as well, something to keep in mind too, if it does happen in your congregation, sometimes you cannot speak about it initially because it is in the courts or because there is a, right, right. a legal issue. And so sometimes it's hidden or, or just not discussed because it can't be legally for a time. And unfortunately, our court systems, unfortunately, things don't run very quickly sometimes. So a case like, like this could be in the court system for over a year. And if the pastor is involved, if the pastor knows things, um, you know, very often a pastor might hear about something in confession, but a pastor very often will then say, okay, go through the, the, the confession and absolution, but then say, now we have some other things to do legally, right? If, right. if you are truly repentant, then there needs to be some healing here. And so then maybe helping that person move on to confessing his sins or confessing his guilt um, publicly. But so if that action is happening and the courts are involved, sometimes you can't talk about it. Um, so that's not to take away the times when you should be talking about it because you should be. And the truth is once it's open, I think, uh, especially if you end up being a church worker, you will see the wounds open up in a lot of other people that you didn't even know had experienced it in the past. Mm -hmm. So just another perspective, right. sometimes it's just, it's a legal issue, but yeah. yeah and I that's totally um, the phrase I couldn't come to mind was the confessional seal. So if you're a pastor, he's not able to talk about that. He's going to continue to work with that, that abuser and do everything he can to help him understand what he's done wrong um, and help him to go and report this and do what needs to be done. But that confessional seal is so important. Again, not every pastor has the same understanding or adherence to that. Every state's different about whether pastors have that privileges like attorneys would have. But for if you're a deaconess or a teacher, you don't have those same privileges. You have to report it. But confidentiality is so key. We don't, if anybody is sharing this with us, we don't talk openly about this without the permission of the victim or the people that are involved. Yeah, I guess that goes without saying. Never, never, never share anything. It's so important that you keep your word and your confidence and, and you get permission before you do anything, except in the case of getting help. If you're a mandatory reporter, you have to report it. Um, but if you're not in that position and you're trying to help a mom who's dealing with an abusive husband that's abusing the children, in those cases, confidentiality is so important. And you do all you can to help point her to the resources that she needs. Um, but again, I think our churches are doing much better than what they have. But that's on you guys to continue to keep the conversation open. Talk about these hard hitting subjects that my generation and older generations of mine just we, we don't talk about these things. We have to. Good questions, you guys. I'm so impressed. <laughs> Usually I close with how can you use this then on a life team? What sort of things could you do to make people in your high school or college aware of this issue? Any ideas? I definitely think, you know, this kind of also reminded me of human trafficking in the sense that there's a lot of, you know, coercion um, or force use. So most of all, you know, educating on the signs and ways to spot it. Um, because so often it flies under the radar and no one really knows what they're seeing until it's, you know, the damage has been done. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there's unspeakable trauma that the person has experienced. 
um, when it could have been spotted earlier if you're educated on the signs and what to do sooner. You can just suggest that hanging things up, you know, so that they're obvious, so that they're, they're very visible, right? These are signs, these are things, places to report. Speak openly in your Sunday school classes and your churches, make it well known that this is a topic that you will address. And again, prevention is key to stop it before the harm is done. Prevention and policies are so important. So the more you can share that you're aware and your church has or school has these issues or, you know, um, this framework in place, then the more you're going to protect the children that are in your care. Well, thank you so much for coming tonight, guys. Uh, Let's give our deaconess a round of applause, even if it's silent. (laughs) So thank you very much. And um, if it's okay, I'll send your email as well. Yeah, sure. And please do reach out. Yeah. If I can be of assistance in any way, please do reach out. I'd I'd love to help. And this is just so near and dear to my heart. So know that I'm here as a resource. Excellent. We'll talk (laughs) to you later. Thanks for joining us for today's life topic. Check out whyforlife.org or email Michelle at whyforlife.org to find out how and when you can go live with us at our next Chats for Life session. Or join us next time right here at Why for Life Podcasts, where youth learn how to be gospel-motivated voices for life.